seems to be a fairly regular occurrence that by the time it gets to the sermon, we've already had the sermon. (laughs) I'm not sure anything could preach better than that. But this morning, this week, I think I need to preach about MJ Sharp. For any who don't know, MJ was one of my brother's best friends, and he'd been working for years as a peacemaker in the Democratic Republic of Congo, first with Mennonite Central Committee, and most recently with the UN. And last month, he and a Swedish colleague and four of their Congolese companions were abducted in the Kasai province, where they'd been investigating an arms embargo and alleged human rights violations. Two weeks later, his body was found in a shallow grave. And yesterday, hundreds gathered in Huston, Kansas, for his memorial service, and many more thousands from around the world, like me, were only there in spirit, some of us live-streaming the service. So I think I need to preach about MJ Sharp this week. That terrifies me, because I don't know how. And maybe what I actually need is for someone else to preach MJ to me, so this could be a mess. But I also know that blithely heralding resurrected life as the final power over death will ring utterly vacuous for me this week, if I don't at least try. And I got exactly this far in my sermon writing when I stopped and I looked out the window. And I didn't intentionally stop. I just stopped because I'm really not putting you on. I don't know what to say. And it's morning. And the sun remarkably is shining. I find myself holding the sun's gaze, diving headlong into its blinding ancient rays, looking for the words that fail me, desperate for any words at all. Instead, I get tears, and it may have something to do with the fact that, like you're not supposed to do, I'm staring directly at the sun. (laughs) Filtered, though it may be, through wispy clouds and wind-rustled evergreen boughs. But as the tears gather and grow and soon spill down my cheeks, I notice that they're for MJ, yes, and for a world that has to now live without him for the next 60 years or so. One dart-throwing prankster peacemaker shy of full capacity. But the tears, I soon realize, are also for the people of Afghanistan who found themselves on the pointy deadly end of the so-called mother of all bombs launched in my name and in your name just a few days ago. And may I side note here to share my complete disgust for a $16 million bomb, part of a $314 million program project getting gendered female in a war machine that is overwhelmingly male Almost without exception, and those only much more recently over the course of human history, men declare war, men strategize war, men wage war, and men profit from war. And this monstrosity of a lethal bomb is female, is mother. (sighs) Had to go there. That's my side note. So back from that side note and back to those tears, it doesn't take long to realize that my tears contain multitudes They are for things as big and distant and unknown to me as child soldiers and mass graves in the DRC. 
They are for things as small and as close and as intimately personal to me as rifts in families and crumbling relationships and the dissolution of marriages. God have mercy on it all. I'm nowhere closer to having words for MJ, but I think I may be closer to understanding Mary Magdalene. John tells us that she stood outside the tomb, weeping. I can only imagine that her tears, too, contained multitudes. Though it was still dark when she first came to the tomb that morning, I imagine that by the time she'd arrived at the tomb to find the stone removed, by the time she'd gone back to tell the disciples, by the time Simon Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved had raced to the tomb, by the time each of them, each in their own time, went into the tomb and found it empty, except for the linens that had been wrapped around Jesus' body and head, by the time they'd returned to their homes, by the time Mary was at last left, standing there weeping outside the tomb, I imagine that by then, she too stood in the blinding, ancient rays of that same sun that shines on me. And that her tears, too, contained multitudes. That her tears were for things as big as the Roman occupation of her land and her people and its impact on communities far beyond the scope of her immediate world and lived experience. That her tears were for things as big as having to sit with a slew of state-sponsored executions violently wrought in her name. And I imagine that her tears were for things as close and as intimately personal as the death of a dear friend. Bolstered by this growing sense of kinship with Mary Magdalene, I reflect on two threads that seem to be weaving through my life and thoughts, because I still don't know what I'm saying. But here's two threads. Proximity and proclamation. I'm struck that Mary goes to the tomb, that she moves her body to the place of death and despair. And that it's precisely there that she encounters unexpected life and renewed hope. Proximity. But she doesn't stay there. I'm moved by the fact that Mary ultimately departs. She is sent by Jesus, whom she encounters there. She ultimately departs even from that place of life and hope in order to bear witness to what she has seen, heard, and experienced, to tell her stories to the disciples and many others, to proclaim, I have seen the Lord. Proclamation. Proximity and proclamation. It all makes me think of Brian Stevenson. Brian Stevenson, for those of you who may not know, is the author of Just Mercy, one of my best reads of the past year. He's an advocate and lawyer who founded the Equal Justice Initiative, representing hundreds of incarcerated and condemned folks in our, ex- in our exceedingly unjust criminal justice system. 
He spoke here in Seattle a few weeks back, and the first of his four main points is that those of us who seek to be justice builders need to get proximate. If we want to affect any kind of systemic change for marginalized folks, we need to get up close and personal. We need to move our bodies and go to places of injustice and be present with folks there. Now, I don't know if Stevenson professes Christianity, but he sure does proclaim a message in line with the teachings and life of Jesus. As a black man, he confesses that Mobile, Alabama is one of the worst places in the country that he could possibly live. And yet he lives there because he's dedicated his work and his life to being with those most oppressed by our racist penal system. Indeed, he and his staff have won reversals, relief, and release for over 115 wrongly condemned prisoners on death row. He goes to the tomb, and it's precisely there that he encounters unexpected life and renewed hope. Proximity. The one thing that he said that I haven't been able to shake, that I'm probably going to carry with me for years to come, is this. Stay hopeful. He said either you're hopeful or you're part of the problem. Yeah, I can't shake that one. (laughs) He told the story of a miraculous transformation of a white prison guard from behaving abusively towards Stevenson to cheering him on in his work. And I call that transformation miraculous because it is. The details I'm not going to dive into today, but pick up Just Mercy and read it. Stevenson proclaims that none of us is reducible to the worst thing we've ever done. Thanks be to God. And that each of us needs to be redeemed. Proximity. becomes proclamation. And that brings me at last to MJ, who at this point you need to know is called Michael in most of the articles out there. An NPR correspondent, Gregory Warner, interviewed MJ in 2015. They did a radio piece then in 2015, and then after his body was found, they did, Warner put together another piece in which he recalled that interview with him two years before. And he says this, Michael Sharp believed in the power of persuasion. The 34-year-old with a penchant for plaid shirts could walk unarmed deep into rebel-held territory in the Democratic Republic of Congo, sit in the shade of banana trees with rebels and exchange stories. Of course, even Michael didn't believe that his strategy of getting to yes under the banana trees, could by itself resolve a 20-year conflict with complex international roots. But he believed that without those quiet conversations, the war would never end. Indeed, MJ worked with the Peace and Reconciliation Program of the Congolese Protestant Council of Churches, a program that reportedly persuaded 1,600 rebel soldiers to give up their weapons and return home. 1,600... Rebel soldiers. MJ went to the tomb, the places of death and destruction and despair in that country. And it's precisely there that he encountered unexpected life and renewed hope, proximity. 
Now, MJ, by all accounts, would scoff at assertions that he was a proclaimer of peace. Even as I knew he had a healthy trash talker within him, he was at his core humble in a remarkably sincere way. I know that it's always tempting to valorize the dead, and I know that MJ would hate all of this. And yet he had a huge impact on so very many. For years, he counseled U.S. American soldiers in Germany seeking to leave the army and claim conscientious objector status. He did that with my brother-in-law, David, who got to speak at the service yesterday and witnessed to and testified at that time in his life of sitting down with soldiers, becoming brothers in arms. For years after that, he helped persuade those 1,600 rebel soldiers in the DRC to lay down their guns and return home. And for years after that, he went into the most violent-soaked regions in the DRC, serving as an armed group's expert and reporting to the United Nations. He investigated the activities and networks and arms trafficking of militia groups, documented their human rights violations, including the use of child soldiers, and also investigated the massacres of unarmed civilians by government forces. In 2013, MJ said this about his work in the Congo. Places of intense conflict are also places where creative solutions are born and put to the test. If Jesus' example is for everyone everywhere, what does that look like in eastern Congo, where war has been the norm for 20 years? I get to work on the front line of Congolese ingenuity and faithfulness in response to violence and hardship. I get to work on the front line, MJ said, of Congolese ingenuity and faithfulness in response to violence and hardship. Proximity becomes proclamation. And in this case, proximity becomes proclamation, which also becomes violent death. And I still don't know what to say about that, except that his life and his death have me asking serious questions about my own I don't know about you, but I sincerely doubt that I will be representing death row inmates in Alabama or cavorting with warlords under some DRC banana trees anytime soon. I'm not sure my life has such grand visions or outcomes. Thankfully, proximity can happen anywhere. I think of several of us who gathered this past Monday with other Christians and Jews in prayer and witness together, and we met across the street from Howard S. Wright, best known perhaps for having built the Grand Coulee Dam and the Space Needle. Howard S. Wright used to be a family-owned Seattle company, but was sold to Balfour Beatty several years back, an international corporation based in the UK that is known for profiting on the building of prisons. Howard S. Wright Balfour Beatty received a $154 million contract, $154 million contract for building the new youth jail here in Seattle. And communities of color have been advocating against this project, a project that bolsters a racist system. system. Incarcerated kids are disproportionately black and brown, and increasingly so. And a project that will profit many white individuals and white-owned corporations. 
So there we were, Christians and Jews, seeking to be in solidarity with the communities most impacted by the proposed new jail, communities that have asked us to stand with them. It's Holy Week, so we Christians confessed our complicity in white supremacy. We read from the Gospels each one of the four, and we flipped tables. Just as Jesus did in the temple when confronting a system of injustice and and domination that caused disproportionate suffering among marginalized communities. And I got to flip one of those tables, and let me tell you, it was fun. And we sang. We sang with gusto, led by the resistance choir from Valley and Mountain United Methodist Church in Rainier Valley, a multi-ethnic choir sharing songs of liberation and standing against the empire. Tyrant, we're going to tear your kingdom down. You've been building your kingdom all over this land. Tyrant, we're going to tear your kingdom down. And we met together, Christians and Jews, some of the planners, just before the action started. And uh, Yasmin, who's one of the leaders of the Resistance Choir, said, we're going to sing this song with tyrant in it. Are there any other words we should use? And Rabbi David said, well, I'm sort of partial to Pharaoh. So we added in some Pharaoh. We're going to tear your kingdom down. It's also Passover week, so the Jews recited ten contemporary plagues representing the suffering caused by white supremacy. The plagues were painted on a large cloth, and then they poured out Passover wine. One cupful splashed for each of the ten plagues. And then in the Sephardic tradition, and this is perhaps my favorite part of the action, they also led us in whipping one another with scallions. Did you know this? This is a Sephardic tradition. You whip with scallions. And the idea is, with these green onions and whipping, is to remind one another of slavery and to wake each other up so that we remember never, ever, ever again to return to slavery. And we sang, Dai, Dayenu, Dai, Dayenu, which is uh, enough. We were saying, it is enough to Howard S. Wright and Balfour Beatty. And then Rabbi David pulled us in for a tighter huddle and prayer. And friends, it was so powerful, the whole thing. Each liturgy deeply rooted in our respective traditions. It was the best sort of interfaith worship and witness. Not the watered-down, lowest common denominator sort of interfaith gathering where we pretend like we're all essentially the same. But the robust kind of interfaith gathering where each tradition was deeply and truly honored. We went to the tomb together, to a place of unjust profiteering here in our own community. And it's precisely there, at that tomb, that we encountered unexpected life and renewed hope. Proximity. And I can tell you that God was there in our huddle. God was alive in our gathering, receiving us and giving us hope beyond anything we could have generated on our own. Something happened there. Something happened amidst the chaos of overturned tables and a mess of a wine-stained cloth that was greater than the sum of its parts. And that something more, that something more that happened, that, I believe, is God. I have seen the Lord Proclamation. I got a message from a friend this week who's in the middle of one of those dissolving marriages contained in my tears. 
filling out the legal paperwork for a divorce, she had to formally state that her marriage was, quote, irretrievably broken. I've heard irreconcilable differences before, but irretrievably broken. That stark final language socked me in the gut. Our world is broken, so very deeply, inscrutably broken, devastatingly and heartbreakingly broken. And this year it feels particularly poignant to claim the Easter message, the resurrection message, that while broken, our world is not, nor shall it ever be, irretrievably so. That's it, in a nutshell. And a seed planted in the ground. Our world is broken. And it is not, nor shall it ever be, irretrievably so. God has said yes to Jesus and no to the powers that executed him. And God still says yes to Jesus and no to the powers that execute him still. And so, this is as Easter as I could get this morning, folks. I'm going to keep showing up and getting proximate. I'm going to keep going to the tombs of our world with y'all, with all y'all. And I am going to keep proclaiming, however falteringly, on any given day, even on a day when the sting of death actually still feels quite real, even as we sing that it's gone. I'm going to keep proclaiming, however falteringly, that I have been to the tomb and that it's precisely there that I have been met by unexpected life and renewed hope. Christ is risen, friends. Christ is risen indeed. Amen.